in Psalm 2. So you can look on the screen or find that on your phone or your Bible. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. As for me, I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. God bless you. Good morning, Grace Life Church. I want to start by saying a prayer. Let's pray together. Lord, it is good to be in your house. And as Sarah reminded us, it is good to be near the Lord. Your nearness to us is our goodness, God. And that's what Advent celebrates, the arrival of someone noteworthy. Emmanuel, God with us, what a thought. God, holy, sovereign, just, good, pure, clean, dwelling amongst a sinful people who have been rebellious and have broken covenant with him. We could not and would not come to you, Father, but you came to us. You condescended. You became a man. You subjected yourself to our world, a world of darkness and hate and violence and suffering and death. Subjected yourself to hunger and weakness and the limitations of human beings living on a cursed planet, and you became even killable, Lord. So Christmas is us celebrating those, those dual realities. There's a sadness to it, Lord. There's a seriousness to it. You, you came to accomplish your mission, and that mission was ultimately to die on behalf of your enemies. I pray that you would help us celebrate that well, reflect on that deeply, and be changed by, by these truths as they center on King Jesus. Pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. Well, a couple of housekeeping things before we get started, because these are important announcements. It is December, and there's a lot going on. So first, next Sunday, can you guys turn this down just a little bit? It's so loud, for me at least. (laughs) Thank you. There we go. Um, Next Sunday is December 10th, and man, I hope this is not a distraction to the message. We're flowing right into it. Uh, But next Sunday, we want to take the opportunity to do something that our bylaws call us to do. As elders, we have proposed a budget for 2024, and our bylaws call for us to present that to members of Grace Life Church for affirmation. 
So next Sunday, immediately following the service, we'll do what we did last time, that we gave a, a finance update. We're going to share the proposed budget that the elders have all approved with you for affirmation. And then the but we're going to have a normal Advent uh, message next week. And then the following Sunday, we're going to appoint elders. We're ready to install our elders. So that's going to be a special Sunday for us. So if, if you want to affirm that budget, stick around next Sunday. I wanted to give you a heads up in case you had plans, um, but wanted to be there for that. That'll be next Sunday. So <clears throat> let's jump into this passage together. Now, <clears throat> I would guess that most of you, maybe all of you, have never heard a sermon during Christmas time, during Advent, on Psalm chapter 2. It's a pretty serious psalm, isn't it? I mean, you may have heard it in Handel's Messiah, which is kind of a Christmas thing, but you've probably never heard a sermon preached during Christmas on Psalm chapter 2. You see no correlation or connection. Well, I hope to rectify that. I hope to remedy that. But I want, I want to start with answering a question. Why in the world would I launch into Advent season with a psalm that's this serious, man? I mean, were you listening to it? Let me read it again. I know, I know don't feel insulted. You're like, we just read it. Sometimes it's really easy to just go into, into cruise, into coast. I want you to listen <clears throat> to these words and, and try to connect it to Christmas. All right, you ready? Here we go. Why do the nations rage? Merry Christmas, right? <laughs> you hearing this? Why do the nations rage? Not do the nations rage. Do the nations rage? You better believe they do. Why do they? The Psalm's answering a question. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves <clears throat> and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart, cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the, leaven, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them. They spoke to him. Now it's his turn. He will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. This would have been so mysterious to David. Is it mysterious to you? Who's this son? Who's this king? You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance. These raging, angry, plotting, scheming nations, they're going to belong to you one day. They're going to be your inheritance. I'm going to gift them to you, son. And the ends of the earth, your possession, you shall break them with a rod of iron. Merry Christmas. And I'm not trying to be facetious. I want to show you the connection here. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel, like a piece of ceramic pottery, so fragile and... can't think of the other word. What's the other word for pottery? Fragile, yeah, that's enough. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned. O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun. Isn't that what Christmas is? Oh, come let us adore him. I know I can't sing, but I get to try. Have you kissed the sun? Boy, I'm going to invite you to today. You better. <laughs> 
Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. So why am I preaching on this? Number one, relevance. Relevance. I, do, I know that all Scripture is profitable. Every last jot and tittle, every verse in Leviticus is profitable for us, right? Some verses in the Bible feel, they, they resonate more deeply with us. And for me, I'm the pastor, I get to kind of pick what I preach on, right? This is one of those passages. This resonates with me so deeply, and it resonates with me because of this. As I look out in the world and I try to make sense of the, of the, of the culture and the society I live in, this psalm perfectly describes it. And the reason that it is and the condition that it's in, and the way that it's going to go, and how it's going to end, and what the remedy is. This resonates deeply with me, and, I, and, I, and my, my task as a preacher is to show you how it should resonate deeply with you too. I mean, think about it, folks. This was written 3,500 years ago by a person who lived in a different time, a different culture, spoke a different language, and yet he perfectly, in just a few verses, describes the condition of the world. It's always been this way from Genesis 3 and on. It's still this way, and it's going to be this way until this king returns. One of my favorite painters is Rembrandt. He was a Dutch realist painter. He was a realist painter in an idealistic age. His paintings were very dark in a time where paintings were bright. His contemporaries were painting pictures of puppies and shiny fruit and bowls and all the good biblical imagery. You know, the good things that were happening. Christ being resurrected and angels talking to people and Rembrandt had a different take on the world, man. He, his paintings were very bleak. They, they called him the master of shadows. Look how dark all of his paintings were. But the reason is he painted life as he saw it. Some people thought he was absolutely obsessed with death. They called him the Grim Reaper. He painted things like a doctor giving an anatomy lesson to his students by dissecting a human corpse. You can put that up there if you, if you want to. No, that's, that's the biblical scenarios that he painted. He painted uh, a slaughtered ox. I mean, who paints that stuff, man? But listen, if, if you lay eyes on the world that you live in and you see death and violence and crime everywhere and you want to accurately reflect that, you're a realist? Some people would say he's a pessimist. Well, maybe he's just painting life the way he saw it. And I appreciate that about him. He called it like he saw it, right? And when he painted biblical art. He, he, he painted Moses breaking the Ten Commandments when he came down and saw the idolatry of the children of Israel. He painted Stephen getting stoned. He painted the prodigal son in a tavern, living it up, spending his livelihood. He painted, I just want to tell you, your pastor is weird, okay? One of my favorite paintings of all time is Rembrandt's painting of Samson getting his eyes gouged out. I don't know why. I don't know why. It's because that's in the book of Judges and that really happened. And it's a lesson for us, right? All things were written for our instruction, for our example, right? And I appreciate Rembrandt painted it, man. You would not hang his paintings in your living room in the 17th century. You would find them in a funeral parlor or a morgue. You say, why are you talking about Rembrandt? Because when I think of Psalm chapter 2, I think of Rembrandt. David was a realist, man. It's, this psalm opens up, there's no warm-up, there's no on-ramp, there's no, no slow, barely perceptible, you know, bring you up to speed. It's, 
If, if it were, if it were a, a movie, it would start out with bullets whizzing and sirens blaring and machine guns. And people call, calling, medic, medic. I just love that. Give me, a, give me a Bible verse, man, that describes the world I live in and then tells me why it is the way it is, tells me where it's headed and what the only remedy is. So one of the reasons I'm preaching on this is because it resonates with me and it's relevant. It's ultimately relevant to where we're at. So relevance. Another reason is royalty. Royalty. You've heard the kingly language in this, haven't you? Typically, when we celebrate Advent, I've told you the word Advent, it means the arrival of somebody noteworthy. We are celebrating the arrival of a king, God's king. And Psalm 2 prophesied this uh, 900 to 1,000 years before it happened. So this is not off base. It's okay. Psalm 2 is about the king, right? It's about the Messiah. It's about his, his coming to rule and to reign. We, we sing about kings at Christmas, don't we? Check this out. Joy to the world, the Lord is... Didn't we sing this earlier? We did. Let earth receive her king. So Psalm 2 is probably where that came from. Here is God's king. Have you received him? The alternative is, is, is not a good prospect, right? Second one, hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king, and then born is the king of Israel. So we sing about this already in songs. Even unbelievers are singing about this. And when you read the Christmas story in Matthew chapter 2 and in Luke chapter 1, there's, there's kingly language all over that. Check it out. And behold, you will conceive in your womb, the angel Gabriel told Mary, and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the what? The throne of his father David. And he will what? Reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his what? Kingdom. There will be no end. Kingly language all over the place. I hope after this sermon, when you think of Christmas, you think Jesus is king. He's not just, you know, this chubby little baby born in a manger, and we like that. We're okay with that. That's so sentimental to us and a little bit nostalgic, and we should celebrate that. That's the glory of the incarnation. I think if most people were honest, we're okay with that. Let's just let that little baby stay in that manger. Him growing up and having a crown on his head and sitting on a throne and exercising dominion and authority over my life, I don't like that so much. So I want to preach this also because of royalty. This is a good reminder at Christmas because we can get so lost in the details. And, and like Sarah said, we can get exhausted and wearied and lost by them and forget like, what's so glorious about Christmas. Christmas is the actual arrival in time and space. Galatians 4 says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were born under the law. So Christmas is about the arrival of God's king and his enthronement, his throne, his established throne, and his authority over our lives. So those are the two reasons uh, that I'm preaching on this. So three points today. Let's just jump right into it. Number one, God gave us a king. God gave us a king. And listen, when we're thinking clearly and we're thinking rationally and we're thinking biblically and we're thinking honestly, we want a king. We need a king. God built into our DNA. We are hardwired. 
to be under the dominion and the authority of a king. We flourish under a king. We thrive under a king. That's why all these legends of kings resonate with us. I was just talking to Marshall earlier today about, you know, the stories like Robin Hood and, and what's the king's name in there? Arthur, thank you. Is it? Is it Arthur? King Leo? King Richard, thank you. King, Rich, king Richard the Lionheart. Why do we love that? This king that has to go in hiding and then he's in disguise. And, or, or Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table. Here's this king and he's shown his true virtue. He's pulled this sword, Excalibur, out of a stone. Nobody else could do it. Nobody else had the virtue enough to be the king. He did. And when he's absent when his throne and goes away, the land is sick and famished. And when he returns, it's restored. Hmm, why, is, why do we like that so much? Why does that resonate? Or Lord of the Rings. I'm sorry, guys. i got to mention it at least once a month. Why this ranger named Strider in the north that's actually a king and he comes with healing hands and he's enthroned at Gondor and makes everything right again? Why do those legends so resonate with us? Because there's truth in them, right? We, enjoy, we like reading those things because we, we want a king. We just don't see any earthly king that would fit that description. That's why it's just legends, right? We were made for a king. We need a king. We flourish under a king. That's the whole thread of the Bible, isn't it? God's people in God's place under God's rule and enjoying God's blessing. If those other factors aren't there, there's no blessing to enjoy. You don't enjoy God's blessing by being spiritual but not religious. You hear that today? You talk to people, hey, can you talk about, yeah, you know what? I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. You know what that means? Number one, it means conversation stopper, step off my toes, Bible thumper, right? The other thing it means is, yeah, I make up my own religion and spirituality. I have constructed a God of my own device who doesn't confront my idols and he doesn't challenge me and he doesn't demand for me to change. But the Bible knows no such thing as that. God's people in God's place, under God's rule, enjoying God's blessing, they all go together. They have to. They were meant to. Christmas is a reminder of that. When Jesus came, he came, came as a king. I have set my king in Zion. God says, I'm giving you my king. I'm establishing him. He is legit. Do you remember in Matthew, and I may be getting ahead of myself, that's okay. You remember in Matthew chapter 2 when the, when the Magi came? There were probably more than three, by the way. The <laughs> Bible doesn't give a number. They came, and they were, some people believe they were Babylonian. They, they were kingmakers. They were, or excuse me, Persian. They were kingmakers. And they came following the star. Some people believe that star, it's the same word in Greek for, for angel. Some people believe it was an angel saying, here he is, come on. They followed that star. They went into Jerusalem. And it says, and they were talking. They were asking around, where is the one who was born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star, and we have followed him, we've come to worship him. And the Bible says that Herod heard, and he was troubled. Herod heard about a king, king of the Jews. Now, wait a minute, Herod was king of the Jews. Wasn't he, remember? I'm doing just fine being king of the Jews, thank you very much. But these, these strange kingmakers from Persia came, and they said, hey, where's, where's the legit king? Where's God's king? And he was troubled, and it says all Israel was troubled with him. See, we don't like the idea of a king. If we're honest, can we, are we going to be honest in here today? We don't like the thought of somebody else exercising authority and dominion over our lives. We don't like people to meddle in our business. We give God this much and no more. My wife was listening to a podcast the other day. She said, come check this out. 
And it was a man talking about Knights of the Templar. Do you remember them? They were the knights that were installed to keep pilgrims making the, the journey to Jerusalem safe because they were getting robbed by highwaymen. And so there were these poor knights and they were knighted and they would be baptized before that time and before the Crusades. And legend says that when the knights of the Templar were baptized, they were immersed fully underwater except for their sword hand and possibly their sword. They would secretly stick it up above the water. You ever hear that legend? Isn't that interesting? Why do you, what do you think that represents? <laughs> it's like, God, I give you everything. All of my life belongs to you except this little part over here. This is mine. That shows that some of the fighting that they were doing, and you can go study history for yourself, they knew wasn't pleasing to God. And so they held that up out of the water. I mean, that's what baptism, what's it signify? A, a death, a death to self. And that's what we think. We stop there, but it's a, a resurrection too. God, that's what we say, you know, buried with Christ, raised to walk in newness of life. God has a new life for you. That's why John the Baptist, he was preaching, and soldiers came to him, and they said, what do we do? And he didn't say, stop being a soldier. You know what he said? Basically, he said, hey, give your sword hand to Jesus too. You don't have to stop being a soldier. That's a legitimate calling. But quit extorting people. Quit scaring people. Quit intimidating people. Serve the Lord in that area of your life. He said the same thing to the tax collectors. What do we do? He said, quit stealing from people. Be honorable. God wants all of your life under his dominion. This is just another way. Can I be honest with you? I'm using kingly language to smuggle in lordship. Ooh, we don't like that word. Jesus is what? Lord. He's not just Savior, right? If the Magi would have came and said, where is he who was born Savior of the Jews? Herod would have been like, oh, I don't know. Let's go find him together. You say king? Ah, oh, I don't like that. I don't want somebody's cold, clammy claws on my life. God gave us a king. Not an advisor. Not a business partner. <laughs> We're okay with those things because we have a measure of control. We, we, we have some independence left, some autonomy. You talk about a king, I get unsettled. That troubles me. It's my life. I'm the captain of my fate. I'm the master of my soul. I'm unconquerable, right? Invictus says. He's not an assistant. A king rules. A king makes claims a king possesses power he has a throne he has a scepter he has subjects he is served he is obeyed i know it's really hard for americans to wrap their minds around that idea because we've seen it done so poorly i mean that's how america got launched right we wanted to get away from tyranny and oppression and so we established and i know there's an argument is it a republic is it a democracy i'm not smart enough to figure all that out but i know this i know this because this idea of of, of King and absolute monarchy and authority was so, left us so disillusioned. Democracy is more like medicine. You take medicine and it can help you, but you can't live on medicine forever. It will mess you up. You ever taken too, many, too much medicine? <laughs> I mean, don't answer that. It could go a lot of different ways. But you understand, we, need it. we were made for a king, but sin came in and jacked everything up. That's why we have to have branches of, you know, study the, the American government. What is it? Legislative, judicial, Executive, thank you, thank you. It's been a long time. Why, do you know what that is? That's called a system of what? Checks and balances. Why do we need checks? We're, we're good, let me be king, put a crown on my head. I'll be good, I promise. 
I'll make good decisions for everybody. I'll be equitable and loyal and honest. (laughs) Sure you will. You ever met a politician? I mean, you ever met a person that were all those things? No. That's why this idea of king terrifies us. We've seen it done. I've got a book on my shelf. I had to quit reading it because the details were so morbid. It's called The 13 Most Evil Men and Women in the World. Most of the people who were evil had authority. I mean, what's the saying? Authority corrupts. Absolute authority corrupts absolutely. And that's true except for this. (laughs) Except for this. God gave us a king. So, this, this passage describes what's going on in our world. It's, it describes this global uprising, doesn't it? Worldwide revolt. Why do the nations rage? If I were to ask you, come up with a few words to describe the world as you look out and see it. How, what words would you use? You'd probably use these. It's in an uproar. I could pick anyone off the streets of Deltona to come up here. And I could ask them, do you think our world is restless, raging, scheming, plotting, dissatisfied, divided, and angry? Who's going to disagree with that? Whether they're a believer or not. Who can deny that? (laughs) Deep thinking men and women throughout history have always came to that conclusion. Historian Edward Gibbons said this, history is little more than the register of the crimes, follies, and misfortunes of mankind. Do you hear that? He says it's a catalog of crime, ignorance, and suffering. A modern writer who's openly hostile to Christianity said this, the state of the world today is nothing but organized insanity. Man, that's a good one right there. You read this psalm, you look around, it's organized insanity. Who's organizing it? We wrestle not against flesh and blood. What did Jesus say about Satan when he was about to be crucified? The God of this world comes, but he has nothing in me. He, he acknowledged There's a power and an authority at loose in the world, and he's scheming and plotting, and he uses minions, he uses puppets, he uses fallen human beings that have the same desire that he does, to resist God's rule. So when you look around and see death and hate and disease and crime and terrorism and injustice and oppression and sexual confusion and sexual sin and abortion and divorce and drugs, it's crazy, isn't it? And when you ask why, why are these things going on? What is going on? You can go to this psalm written 3,500 years ago and you can get all your questions answered. I mean, this psalm is basically a worldview, isn't it? What's the world supposed to be like? What happened? How can it be put right again? Psalm 2, bam, there's your answer. So, God gives us his answer. He gives us a king. The king is Jesus Christ, no doubt about it. There's a place in Acts chapter 4 where Peter and John are preaching after the day of Pentecost. They're preaching on the good news. Jesus is king, and he's been resurrected. He's not dead. He's alive. He offers forgiveness and grace and restoration, and they were arrested. Do you remember this? They were harassed. They were arrested. They were accused. They were imprisoned, but the people were going nuts, so they had to let them out. So they threatened them. They warned them, and they sent them back on their way. And Do you remember Here's, here's the passage that describes what happened. They went back to their friends, and it says, they lifted their voices together to God, and they said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did that you recognize this quote? 
It's Psalm 2. Why did the Gentiles or the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city, now check this out, this is so cool. You, you want to know how to study the Bible, check this out. This is an inspired text talking about an inspired text. And the apostles are applying Psalm chapter 2 to their day, just like you and I should. They quoted that psalm and they're like, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod, king of the Jews, Pontius Pilate, king of the Gentiles, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, the Jews, to do whatever, oh, your hand and your plan predestined to take place. He's still king. (laughs) Don't you love that? All the rage, all the violence, all the crime, all the hate, all the upheaval and confusion and revolt. He's still king. It's his plan. It's all according to plan. And then let's keep reading here. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Man, this is, this is another sermon for another day. Every time you see persecution in the Bible, they don't say, Lord, take it away, or Lord, get them, or Lord, kill them. You know what they ask for? Strength and grace to continue the mission. I lost my place. I can't see this. No, 30, yeah. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they had gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. I love that passage, man. That's an inspired application of an inspired passage we're looking at today, Psalm 2. Listen, guys, this is a, a, a quick historical catalog of the world. God gave us a king, and what's point two? Point two, we didn't want him. God gave us a king, point one. Point two, we didn't want the king. We revolted. We were in an uprising. This is a mutiny. This is a collective, I guess mutiny is collective by definition. This is the world in mutiny. It's like, really, it's like Genesis chapter 11, you remember? After the flood, God gave specific instructions to the rest of the world. And he said, scatter and multiply and be fruitful and fill the earth and exercise dominion. The same thing he told them in Genesis chapter 2 and 1 that they failed to do. And you you remember what the people did in Genesis 11? They said, no thanks, king. We're going to unite and we're going to assemble on this plane here and we're going to build a tower up into the heavens. And we're going to make what? A name for you? We're going to make a name for ourselves. Do you remember this? It's the same thing. Psalm 2, Genesis 11, Acts 4, and 2023. God has given us his king, and we said, no. No, I'm religious, but not, I'm spiritual, not religious. Thanks. I'll give you honorable mention, but it's my life. Do what I want. Thank you very much. And I love, I love Genesis 11, too. That's another sermon for another day. You remember they built this enormous tower, and God said, oh, look, how cute. Remember? It says, Hebrew is amazing language, man. It says the Lord went down. They built this huge spiraling tower up into the heavens to threaten the dominion and the authority of God. And the Lord went down to see it. He had to stoop down. Is that, what, what is that? Now? I can't, so it's ants. What is that? God gave us a king. We didn't want a king. 
So this is painting a picture of a world in united protest, a collected uprising, a global mutiny of some kind. Check it out. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together. What's this about? Against the Lord and against His anointed. In Acts chapter 4, it took the form of persecution against the church. And it still does. As we know, we, we heard a few weeks ago, we recognize the day of prayer for the persecuted church. It still takes that form. It also takes the form of everything that God has established, every order. You see this in every realm of life. God made them male and female. Do you see a, a moral uprising against that? Do you see an uprising against that? Yeah, and I'm not picking on any particular group. It's across the board. God gave marriage between one man and one woman. That's not just against people who want to marry same sex. It's against people who view the covenant of marriage so lightly and dismiss it so easily or break that so quickly. God has given an established order. And we've said, no, we'll establish our own order. We'll do whatever we want with our bodies. We'll sleep with whoever we want. What are we holding out of the water, guys? What are we holding out? Our phones, our bodies, our sexual preferences, our relational preferences, our wallets. <laughs> what, are we, what are we looking at the Lord? This is a sermon for everybody. I don't just want you to think, yeah, this is a sermon really sticking it to all the unbelieving people in authority today. No, my friends, this is a sermon for all of us to absorb. What is it that we are rising up against our king and our creator and said, you can have all of my life except this? There's something, something we don't got, want God's cold, clammy hands on, right? Because we think this king has come to take life, to steal life. We think this king has come to end our freedom, to end our autonomy, to end our hope for happiness. Oh, we couldn't be more wrong. Nobody wanted this king, but here's the kicker. This is God's king. This is God's king, and he comes with the full backing and authority and legitimacy of the God who established him. Remember what, remember what God the Father said through the booming voice publicly? This is my beloved son. Hear him. Or this is my beloved son at his baptism, in whom I am well pleased. I'm well pleased with this king. Better honor him. You better follow him. You better obey him. You better surrender to him. Better offer your life to him. He's going to get it one way or the other. Every knee will bow, right? There's two kinds of people in the world. Humble or humbled. So our problem is not that we are just indifferent toward God. This psalm blows that out of the water. You say, well, I'm just indifferent to God. No, the Bible says there's two sides and you have to pick. There is no, neutrality is a myth. thought of a king sometimes unsettles us. You know, one of my favorite paintings that Rembrandt did, and the reason I, I'm so endeared with him is because he painted multiple, he painted multiple pictures of the crucifixion. But most of the time, if you look carefully, do you see anybody in that painting? That's Rembrandt. He painted himself. He, by the way, I know this is probably dumb. He painted over 100 self-portraits of himself, following himself all through life. So I know this is him. I know what he looks like. <clears throat> he painted himself in the picture of the crucifixion. And look, folks, he's not down there adoring 
the dying Savior. He painted himself amongst those who were scoffing and mocking. That's why I love Rembrandt. He was honest. Was it a Wesley song that said, Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers? Wesley was honest. You ever hear your voice calling out among the mockers? Away with him. Remember the parable Jesus told about the, the tenants on, the, on the, the vineyard that were leased, and then the master went away, and he sent, his, he sent his son. Remember what the people cried out? We will not have this man reign over us, away with him. And they killed him, drug his body out of the vineyard. If we're honest, sometimes that's how we feel. It's okay to be honest in church. Listen, guys, somebody asked me the other day, is your church services for believers or unbelievers? And I'm like, yes. <laughs> like, what do you mean? I'm like, do you, if, if we all had perfect belief, we would never sin again. Do you realize that? Do you know why you sin, Christian? Christians do sin. You realize that. Come on, let's be honest. You sinned today, didn't you, already? You've sinned since I started preaching. You're like, man, come on. <laughs> do you know why we sin? Because we stop believing. The promises of the gospel. The gospel says Jesus is better than whatever lie you're about to believe in sin. That's all sin is, guys. It's rejecting the promises of God and saying Jesus isn't enough. I've got to make up the gap. That's why we get enslaved to things like money and sex and alcohol. Things that aren't sinful in themselves, but we put them... We Listen, you were made with a built-in throne in your life, and you're going to put something or someone on it. And usually it's not someone bad. That's not the way the devil tempts us. It's something good that becomes something godlike, that becomes something ultimate, and then it tears you to pieces. So what's on the throne of your life right now? I can guarantee you most of the problems in your life, you can trace it to something is in the center of your galaxy, and it's holding sway in your life, and it shouldn't be there. And this psalm's a reminder. Christmas is good news. It doesn't have to be there. Somebody that's... Somebody has came that belongs in the center, and they're going to rule your life much better than whatever that thing is, I promise you. Idols are violent, and they're bloodthirsty. That's the language of idolatry in the Bible. Idols don't come to serve you, buddy. They demand you serve them, and you better have something bloody in your hand because their demands are relentless. Well, I'm just going to take this, you know, I just moved here, just, just my career is so important to me. All oh, your career. I was reading this by a pastor who planted a church in Manhattan. He said, people come here all the time because they want to be free. They come here to pursue their career and independence, and within a year, they're enslaved. Their career, what happened? Their career was on the throne of their life. Now that is their life. Colossians 3 says, when Jesus, who is our life, appears, Jesus is our life, not our career, not our spouse, not our social media platform, not our beauty or our health or our wealth or anything like that. When those things creep into your life and they occupy your throne, bad things are coming. You're going to end up on Dr. Phil or something <laughs> with him turning to you and saying, hmm, how's that working for you? <laughs> That's Psalm 2 asking this question. How's this thing that you've enthroned in your life working out for you? Have you ever played King of the Hill? It's hard to get somebody off that throne, isn't it? One person said, I've never given up anything in my life that didn't have claw marks on it. Rebellion against this king is in every heart. I would be, I would be less than honest with you as a pastor if I didn't bring these things up. 
To some people, this is unpleasant. They're like, ah, come on, man. You come to church. I got to hear a, you got to come to church. It's Advent. It's Christmas. I got to hear a song about the wrath. This, this, this king's like shattering things with a rod of iron. Come on, pastor. This is the essence of Christianity. We want a king. If we're honest, we want a king that's just, don't we? Does it crush you, man, to look around and to see the oppression and the violence and the injustice and the oppression? Isn't there a cry in your heart? Let's be honest, guys. Isn't there a cry in your heart for vengeance, for, for justice, for the accounts to all be settled? If we're honest, we want that. Now, if we're really honest, we know we're, we deserve that too, right? We're sinful, but we look around, and this is meant to encourage us. We look around at times and we see this, this outrage. We see these plots and these schemes. And I was reading in Revelation, I think it's chapter 6 the other day. And there's these souls underneath the altar. We, John's the, the, the revelator. He's, he's given an, a, a description of heaven. He sees souls under the altar and he says, who are these? And he says, these are the martyrs who were beheaded for Jesus and they are underneath the altar in heaven where there's no sin. And you know what they're saying? How much longer, O oh Lord, must we wait for vengeance? Remember what the angel does? He gives them a white robe and he clothes them and he says, a little while longer. And they're talking about this psalm. How much longer have we got to wait for this? How much longer? And he says, until the, the full number of martyrs, your brothers, is complete. There's going to be more injustice, there's going to be more violence, there's going to be more persecution, but it won't last forever. This psalm comforts my heart. It comforts my heart, and if I'm honest, it heightens the urgency for evangelism. Because we know, don't we? We know how it's going to end for people. There's going to be the sheep that are separated on his right hand, there's going to be the goats on the left. So, can we get to the good part now? (laughs) God gave us a king. We didn't want this king. That's bad news. You'll know the good news? The king wanted us. Woo! Merry Christmas. Hallelujah. Do you realize that's the gospel? You say, yeah, man, God really needs to come and get the bad baby. I was driving in my, in my minivan a long time ago. With, with, uh, I'm not even going to mention what's of my kids. They were little, and they were singing a song. Oh, man, I wish I could remember the song, honey. I said in my notes. It was a beautiful little song they made up on their own. I'm like, man, they're going to be on a praise team Sunday. It was one of my sons, so you got four options as to who it is. He's like, God is good. God is just. You know, God loves everyone except the bad guys. That's what he said. And it was one of those pull the minivan overs moments. And I'm like, son, that's a beautiful song. And you know, you're expressing your belief in theology. I probably didn't say it that way. I'm trying to make myself look good. I think I just kept driving. I'm like, all the bad guys, huh? He goes, yeah, Daddy. I said, God God loves everybody except the bad guys, right? I said, right, Daddy. I said, well, which one are you? He said, I'm one of the good guys. <laughs> I said, son, we got to talk. <laughs> there, there are none righteous. No, not one. So, yeah, it's very good news that the king wants you. Let's finish it. What's it say? He who sits in the heavens laughs. And I told you that's good news for those of us who desire justice, right? He who sits in the heavens laughs. He holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them as wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, 
the ends of the earth, your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. In other words, all this mutiny, all this outrage, all this collective protest, it's, it's futile. It's futile. It's vain. It's not going to end well. But then this, now therefore, O kings, be wise. Now this is incredible. So you get this picture, this king is going to come with a rod of iron. He's coming anyway. I don't care the uprising. It doesn't matter. This king's coming, and he's coming with a rod of iron. You would think, oh, man, it's over. This king is going to come. What would a king coming to vindicate his honor and his righteousness, what would he do? What would you think? Would he humiliate them? Would he banish them? Would he enslave them and make them a POW for prisoner of war? Now you're going to serve me? Or would he, worst case scenario, execute them? You know what the shock and the surprise of Christmas and the gospel is? This king doesn't do any of those things. This king comes and offers them an olive branch. And he does you too. Have you taken it? This king offers a truce. He offers peace. Shalom, shalom. We sing about that at Christmas too, right? Peace on earth. Goodwill toward those with whom he is well pleased. Check it out. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. And then check this out. If you're an underliner, underline this. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. You know what, he, you know what this king offers? He comes blazing down to the earth with a rod of iron. This is a picture of the second advent. Suffering servant, first advent. Victorious reigning king, second advent. Did I get that right? Yeah. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. I can tell you this right now, those of you watching from home, every single human being who's ever been born in the world is taking refuge in someone or something. And here is, is, here's God serving you notice. Blessed, that means happy. Happy are all those who take refuge in, in him. This king offers you peace. He offers you an olive branch. He offers you forgiveness. He offers you reconciliation with him. And here's the bigger kicker. You know, this, this king is not coming to take away your life. He's, offering, he's coming to give you life. The son shall make, if Jesus, if the son makes you free, you're free what? Indeed. You know what that means? That's a way for the Bible to say you're really free. See, we think we're free. We think, just give me my independence. Give me autonomy. We're standing in front of the tree of the knowledge and good and evil. And the serpent's whispering his lies. And we think, yeah, man, this, this, this God in the garden's trying to crimp my freedom. He says, I can't do this. I can't eat of this tree. And the servants tell me, because he's scared of you, you're going to be like him. We think this king came to crimp our freedom. He came to actually offer us true freedom. We think he came to take our life. A long time ago, <laughs> we lived in Ormond Beach. My wife, she loves to run. And she started a little running club with, with two serious runners. They would get up, man, the crack of dawn, and they would run. And one morning, two of the ladies couldn't go, so our neighbor ran by herself. And she came back later that day, and there was a big fuss. And I'm like, what in the world happened? And my wife told me, she said, you're not going to believe this. She said she was running, what was it, a three-mile, mile-and-a-half down, mile-and-a-half back. And it was early in the morning in the pre-dawn area, and it was in an undeveloped neighborhood that they would travel to, just blank, stubbed-up plumbing through the dirt. And nobody was there. And so this girl ran by herself. And scariest thing, I guess, for girls who are running, right? She heard footsteps behind her. It was dark. It was an isolated place. She turned around and there was a man behind her. 
and he wasn't in jogging outfit. He had work clothes on, and he was running behind her. And she told Sarah, she said, my heart just, my heart just came, out of my, came out of my mouth. She said, I've never been that scared all my life. And Sarah said, what did you do? She said, huh. She said, I ran back to my house. She said, I sprinted. And it was, she was already a mile and a half there, tired, fatigued. She said, I ran all the way back home. She said, I've never ran that fast in my life. She said, I ran home, and I threw up, and then I told my husband, and she said, I'm basically, I'm done. I'm not going to do this anymore. Why am I telling you this story? <laughs> I'm telling you this story because I have a sneaking suspicion that a lot of people view God the way that our neighbor viewed that guy behind her. He's coming after me to do something horrible to me. Now, I wish I could tell you that the guy, and I don't know, she never talked to the guy. He probably was out to do something more. I don't know. But I think we think of God like that. It was J. Oswald Chambers that said, the root of all sin is the sneaking suspicion that God isn't good. We, th- we think God is after us. He's going to crimp our freedom. He's going to take things away. He's going to ruin my life. He's going to take, take, take. And the Bible says Jesus came to give. I mean, he gave the greatest thing he could possibly give. What did he give? He gave his life. That's what we're about to celebrate. Listen, this this psalm talks about the wrath of God, but check this out, guys. We can flee the wrath of God for one reason and one reason only, because Jesus didn't. Do you know that? Jesus did not flee from the wrath of God. He considered it. He said, Father, is there any other way? He had the cup of God's wrath, and he said, is there any other way, or do I have to drink this cup? And God said, there's no other way. And he said, then I'll drink it to the very bottom, to the dregs. And that's exactly what he did. He drank God's cup of judgment to the very dregs. He stood between us and God's eternal wrath. And he took it all. He absorbed all of it in his body and in his spirit on behalf of you and me. That's the kind of king he had. That's the kind of king that came to us at Christmas. Would you trust that king? What king, what ruler, what politician ever did that for you? What ruler ever did that? We sang about that last week, didn't we? Which of these kings, I'm going to butcher the lyrics, became the least of these, basically. No other king did anything like that for you or me. Jesus did. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. Mutiny is exhausting. Come and rest. Do you know these, these words, let us cast his cords away from us? Wait, wait let me read it. Against the Lord and against this anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and let us cast away their cords. The word for bonds is just another word for binding. And the word for cords is just rope. That's what, do you, let me ask you a question, guys. Do you feel that way about the commandments of Christ? You know, the the New Testament says his, his commandments are not burdensome to us. When you're a Christian, you view God's commandments in a totally different way. They're not a a to-do list for you. They're not, hey, do this and get right with God. Jesus is the only one that ever kept all those. That's his righteousness he gives freely to us. When we view the commandments now, we view them this way. This is the kind of life that I will flourish and thrive, and it's the kind of life that's pleasing to him. So serve the Lord with fear. The fear of the Lord, it just means you're being overwhelmed. You're in awe of God. You've taken him seriously. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Hopefully you don't view the exhortations in the Bible is like, ah, yuck, get these things off of me. Jesus is the one that said, my yoke is what? Easy. My yoke is easy. It's like a non-yoke. Dane Ortland in his book, Gentle and Lowly, said, the yoke of Christ does for us what helium does for a balloon. 
It lifts you up, man, out of the slimy pit of your sin and rebellion. It says, there is a better way. Come and rest. Mutiny is exhausting, and it's not going to end well. There's a better way. This king came. He gave himself for you. He gave everything for you. What are you holding out of the water? Where, where are the pockets of resistance? Where are the pockets of insurgence in your life? Give them to this king, man. He, he demands it, and he deserves it, doesn't he? Give it all to him. Hail King Jesus. Long live the king. Come let us adore him. Let's do that together today. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for this reminder that you are God's king. You have been established. You have set your king upon your holy hill in Zion. And Lord, we all admit, if we're honest and we're reflecting, we have had resistance to this king. We have felt burdened and threatened by him, Lord. We have held out places in our life and and resisted him. And Lord, if we're also honest, we know that that is not going well for us and it won't end well for us. Lord, you, you came not to take us prisoner, but to set the captives free. And before that happens, Lord, before we're set free, we have to acknowledge the lies that have held us in bondage. I pray this morning, Lord, as, as somebody prayed in our corporate prayer time, Lord, that you would free the captives. The lies that are holding people hostage and bondage in this room, Lord, King Jesus, would you break them to pieces? Don't shatter us, Lord. Shatter these lies. Shatter this oppression. Shatter the, the blind spots. Shatter the high places that we have enshrined in our life, Lord. Break them to pieces. Reveal them in their true light. Show them what they are, Lord. They are holding us back. They are making us less than what you intend for us to be, Lord. You want us to live in in a way that honors you and that we're thriving and that we're happy and we're living on mission and we're telling the truth to the world about what a good king you are. And whatever is a roadblock to that, Lord, take it away. We want that when we're thinking clearly and rationally and biblically, Lord. So I pray this time of reflection would truly be us adoring you and reflecting on our life, what needs to be taken away. And may this time of communion be, be sweet, Lord. Be with Kyle as he leads us in this time, Lord, and, and we consider what it cost you to redeem us and to make us your loyal subjects, Lord. You gave up everything so that we could, so that we could be more than conquerors in Christ. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Kyle, you come and lead us now. And servers, you can prepare yourself. And listen, if you have believing children in the back that you want to come and join you for this time of communion, we welcome that. Uh, Our teachers know that that some families are going to come and collect their children, so you can do that now. And we'll celebrate communion. And then we'll close out our service with some announcements, okay? And let let me say, too, if something in this sermon has uh, unsettled you or you feel like you need more, it's left you with a question or maybe an answer or maybe something I didn't cover, I would love the opportunity to talk with you more in person. Or you can fill out a, a card and drop it in that box. Our leadership will lay eyes on it. Or you just want to pray with somebody this morning, we'll, we'll stick around from that after communion, okay? Kyle?